We are starting a new sermon series this morning. We're going to be, uh, this is going to be a six-week series uh, in the letter of Philippians. And the sermon, or the, the series is titled Subversive Unity. So as we move through Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, if you're familiar with this, you'll probably get a sense. But uh, I believe we're going to get a better sense for what following Jesus was like in those early days when the church was just forming. But we're also going to get some insights about what it means to follow Jesus today as the the Scripture is still speaking to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I name the series Subversive Unity is because in that day, Christians were very much on the margins, right? There weren't that many of them. It was a fledgling movement. And to some people, being Christian, swearing allegiance to Jesus as Lord was taken as anti-Roman rhetoric. This is in the Roman Empire. They are the superpower. They've kind of taken over a lot of the civilized world. And this little movement, talking about this Jesus as Lord, was suddenly taken as, wait, wait a second. We thought Caesar was Lord. And so we're going to get a little bit into that. The Christian faith, the way of life of following Jesus, very much challenged the status quo of Roman rule of the cultural, the social, the political systems that supported and and propped up Roman rule. Now, in order to be united as God's people in that time, as Scripture had taught them, the Christians they had to be they had to be subtle, they had to be clever, and they had to be subversive. They had to stick together because there weren't that many of them, and they had to stay, stick together in very close fellowship. Because in many places, they couldn't come out publicly wearing their crosses or Jesus fish or whatever they were using. They couldn't come out because there was a risk of persecution and opposition. To be a Lone Ranger Christian, I don't know if that's a term you're familiar with. This is what I heard in college a lot, right? To be a Lone Ranger Christian, this, this wasn't a thing back then. It was inconceivable to be a Lone Ranger Christian because going at it alone would not only be foolish and dangerous... But it's also, frankly, antithetical to the way of Jesus. We don't do this on our own. So we're going to get into all of this as the series goes on. So it's a bit of a teaser for you. Uh, I'll be preaching the first couple sermons, and then I'm going to give way to uh, other preachers for the remainder. And I'm really excited to hear from them and how the Spirit's moving in them. Now, I want to clear one thing up. I'm saying subversive, but I want to be clear that to be subversive in this case did not mean to hide their faith. It didn't mean to hide that they love Jesus. It didn't mean that they hid their allegiance to Jesus as Lord. What it meant, though, was that they had to be wise. They had to be humble as they lived obediently to God's call on their lives. And again, we'll get into all that uh, as the series goes on. This morning, we're going to focus on the first 11 verses in uh, the letter of Philippians, so we'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and the sermon title today is Growing Our Mutual Love. Growing Our Mutual Love. So if you're able uh, or willing in this heat, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Again, this is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Yeah, get a stretch in, you know, do what you got to do. <laughs> Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God for every remembrance of you, always in every one of my prayers for all of you, praying with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For all of you are my partners in God's grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the tender affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what really matters. So that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God. God. Amen. Uh, You can have your seats. I'm going to pray for us as we get into this text this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the one who unites your people. We thank you that you are the reason we are united. We don't come together around any other interest, any other goal besides you. Lord God, your sacrifice, your love for us is what brings us together. And so, Lord, I pray that um, as your word goes forth this morning, that that would be abundantly clear Uh, that we are bound together, and then how to live that out, how we work that out in the power of the Holy Spirit together. So thank you, God, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you've um, ever been to our house, you've probably noticed we have quite a few plants. Uh, We have sort of teeming with plants as my wife continues to propagate more and more plants. Now, one of the plants that we have, one of my favorites, is this jasmine plant. Is anyone familiar with the jasmine plant? Okay, so we have a couple of these. Now, there's this one that we've had for a few years that I love. But we have a complicated relationship, me and this jasmine plant. Because some days it likes a lot of sun for stretches, and then it doesn't. Likes a lot of water for a while, and then it doesn't. And it just will not give me flowers the way I want it to. It's very frustrating. And yet, I, I just can't quit this plant because it's just, it's, it's, I, there's something about it. At a low point for me, I, it, it grew kind of bare, nursed it back to health. It was looking good and green, but again, no flowers were coming from this thing. Now, as some of you are familiar with this plant. It, it, the reason it's so beautiful is because the flowers, it, this amazing aroma. I mean, there's like candles and things, right, with the smell because it's, it's so fragrant. Okay, anyway, a few, a few months ago, I was just at a loss for why there were no flowers blooming on this plant. I watered it regularly with this organic fertilizer that I, that's helping all the other plants thrive. They all looking great, except for this one. Got plenty of sun. Everything else is looking great. Again, not this one. So I talked to my dad. I, I consulted an expert. So my parents are florists, and my dad has the greenest possible thumb, Okay. So I'm like, he'll know what to do. And what he told me was, maybe don't fertilize it for a while and just see what happens. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to lie. My first reaction was, you're the one who told me to use this fertilizer. You said it would fix the, right? But I listened like a good son. I obeyed. Sure enough, what happens within a week or two? Flowers. 
flowers, flowers, flowers. It's, it worked. <coughs> it's flowering regularly. It's got new shoots coming out. It's looking pretty healthy. You see, this jasmine plant and I, we needed intervention. We needed, we needed help. Okay? Now, I thought I knew best. Turned out I needed an expert. Okay? In verses 9 and 10 of our passage, Paul says this. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what really matters. The plant flourished once I had help. My dad, the plant whisperer, he knows a lot more about plants than me. He's taken care of them for years and years. And through his experience, he has gained this wisdom, this insight that you really kind of can't teach, right? You just, it's something you learn from experience. He's developed his senses over all these years. And in my relationship now with my dad, I'm learning from him very slowly, but gleaning some of that wisdom about how to take care of these many, many plants that we have in our home. And this is what Paul is saying happens when our fellowship, our mutual love in Jesus grows. Paul mentions his partnership with the Philippians twice in these opening verses. This is a close fellowship that has formed over some years through acts of mutual love. This has been demonstrated. It's not just words here. They've done significant things to love each other. And as they've lived into that fellowship, their love has grown for both parties, both wiser and more discerning. In other words, more like Jesus, right? Paul desired for the Philippians' love to grow in mutuality and in wisdom. See, Paul understands that love isn't just between God and an individual. It's not just between us and God. Fellowship with sisters and brothers in Christ is an essential part of loving Jesus. And not only that, our love is sharpened and honed and becomes wiser as we practice mutual love and fellowship. Love grows in wisdom and insight when it's worked out in true fellowship. And the Philippians and Paul, they model this, this type of mutual love for us here. So likewise, today, our love in Jesus must grow in mutuality and in wisdom. And this morning, we're going to look at how our love can grow in mutuality and how our love can grow in wisdom. So if you're following along, we've got two points for our first Sunday morning here. All right, so first, our love can grow in mutuality. The Philippians nurtured their fellowship with Paul by loving the people that Paul loved. Okay, they loved the people that Paul loved. See, the Philippians, they were one of the most loyal and reliable churches for Paul's mission. This is why he, he frankly, why he loves them so much. They've been really good to him. They contributed significantly to Paul's collection uh, for the church in Jerusalem because many of the Judean Christians were impoverished, and the collection that was received from the Gentile churches that Paul had planted were really significant contributions for them. Um, and it was a powerful form of solidarity in Christ, but it was also a really, really important way of meeting some tangible needs that these Judean Christians had. But think about this, right? Like these days you can make a donation and sometimes you can see like who receives it and then like their social media reactions. But, but the Philippians, they couldn't do that, right? There was no like Instagram or Facebook where the Judean Christians receive their, their collection and take them like a selfie. Like, wow, look at all this. There's none of that happening here, right? There's no real tangible connection that they can make. And chances are these Philippian Christians will never meet, have never met, will not have met those Judean Christians on this side of glory. 
they gave out a faith and they gave out a love for Paul. And we can also love people by loving the things and the people that they love. If you're struggling to connect with someone, this has worked for me anyway, one of the best ways to do this is just to take a genuine interest in something that they're interested in. Not trying to get them to like what you like, but to figure out, well, what are you interested in? How can I, come, how can I, how can I learn more about that? Right? So, so simple, uh, simple examples. If your friend is a gamer, you play games with them. If your niece loves anime, you watch anime to, you know, to the degree that you can stomach that sort of thing. You watch anime with her. Kids, I actually think you're really good at this naturally because I, I think you're a little more curious than us grown-ups most of the time. So you can teach us, actually, teach your parents, your grandparents, your aunties, your uncles, how to be curious, how to take interest in the things that your friends take interest in. See, the Philippian Christians, they love the Judean Christians because Paul loved them. And out of solidarity and mutual love for Paul, they loved the Judean Christians. So the Philippians nurtured their mutuality with Paul by loving who he loved. The second way they did this, the, the Philippians nurtured their mutuality with Paul by supporting him in prison. Okay, so back then, prisoners, they were completely at the mercy of their captors. They were vulnerable to physical abuse, emotional abuse, all sorts of abuse in prison. And they were reliant on people on the outside to support them. What did the Philippians do? They sent Epaphroditus to Rome. Awesome name, by the way. They sent Epaphroditus to Rome to attend to Paul's needs. They didn't just send him well wishes. They didn't just pray for him. They didn't just send him a meal or two. They sent one of their own to attend to him, to visit him in prison, to, to take care of his needs. They went many extra miles, I would say, but this is how they expressed their love for Paul. Now, to get the significance of this, you have to understand the situation here. By standing with Paul, by becoming Christians, the Philippians took really significant risks. See, Philippi was a Roman colony that was originally settled uh, in large part by retired soldiers, Roman soldiers. And they were granted Roman citizenship as, as a result. Now, Roman citizenship was a big deal back then. You didn't just give this out to anyone. You can apply for a passport. You had to earn it through significant sacrifice or you were born into it. So it's a big deal to have Roman citizenship. So some, for some in this Philippian church, loyalty to Rome, to Caesar, to this emperor cult in which they practiced and worshipped past and current Caesars as God, as Lord, this was in their bones because it had been significant for their livelihoods, for their families. It's in their DNA to be grateful to Rome and then in return be loyal to Rome. So in making this decision to become a Jesus follower was in many ways to sort of spit on that, okay? Now, back then, religion was woven into the everyday uh, fabric of their lives. And to opt out of this uh, emperor worship, as the Christians did, was to risk being ostracized by your neighbors, by your friends, to risk potential uh, attention from the authorities, from the state, and also economic loss. Now, now, why is this? It's because they had these like feasts and gatherings that were regular occurrences, but these all involved like Roman cultic worship. Okay, so it's like pagan worship is, is the way we'd phrase this. And so the Christians, they would opt out of these things, right? Because they're, we're not, we don't do that anymore. But to, to, to stop these activities, it was basically kind of like slapping your friends in the face and saying, I'm not going to your birthday party. 
not going to that graduation. These are the places where they met their friends. These are the places where they talked business. This is where their kids played together. And they stopped all of that at great risk. Think about it, right? You stop showing up, they're going to stop going to your business. That flower shop, you're not getting business anymore from these people. And if you were a slave, as many of these Christians were, you risked abuse and worse treatment from your masters if you're rejecting Rome. What do you think you're doing here? So this is significant risk that they're taking. So nurturing mutuality with Paul was costing them in so many different ways, socially, physically, economically. So this is, this is not a flippant decision that these folks are making. So my question to you this morning is, what does it cost you to nurture mutuality with God's people? What does it cost you? How is following Jesus costing you worldly gain or the very least convenience? Does it look like practicing a very different sexual ethic as a single person than your friends? Does it look like being honest with your partner about your needs? Now, I say this somewhat out of personal experience because for some of us, expressing our needs is like death. It feels like death to be able to admit those things. Does it look like giving a second chance to the recovering alcoholic in your family, even if it means we might get burned again? Now, to be clear... This does not mean putting yourself in harm's way. It's not, it's, not a, it's not setting yourself up for abuse. But when appropriate, when love calls, can we give that second, third, fourth, fifth, many, many chances? Perhaps it looks like calling out unethical practices at your company at the risk of your position. That's a, that's a tough one. Perhaps it looks like humanizing the people on the other side of that a political divide, even if your friends and your colleagues don't understand it or don't agree with it. Again, kids, I would say maybe some ways to think about this. Nurturing mutuality may look like befriending that loner, right? The kid maybe everyone else makes fun of, thinks is weird. See, true mutuality and fellowship in Jesus are costly because the enemy doesn't like it. See, mutuality, it heals divides and it glorifies God. So, of course, the enemy's not going to like that. See, our love can, and, and I would say it must grow in mutuality because love is meant, of course, can only exist in a relationship, right? So, our love can and must grow in mutuality. My second point this morning is that our love can and must grow in wisdom. Now, what does it mean for love to be wise? I hadn't really thought about love as being wise before this passage, so I really sat with this one for a while. In this context, what Paul's talking about is having insight, not only to discern what is right from what is wrong, but from discerning what is good from what is better. Okay, so not just right and wrong, but from what is good and what is better. And that's where the real discernment, that full insight he's referring to comes in. See, he's not referring to a list of do's and don'ts here. This is not just like a you know, this is, this is not like a punitive system or like a, you, you follow this line. Paul's talking, is saying that the wise are in tune with God's will and the Holy Spirit's movement, just as Jesus was. See, Jesus didn't live in a prescribed way, right? You read the Gospels. He's very unpredictable. He's always like, whoa, I did not expect him to say that. There's a lot of those moments. Why? Because he was the embodiment of wisdom on all occasions. He didn't, he didn't have like a prescribed way of responding to people it all the time. See, for the Philippians, too, 
They loved wisely when they chose the costly path of solidarity in Jesus. That was wise love in action. Now, in hindsight, it may seem obvious that it was right and good for the Philippian church to financially support Paul and other churches. But in the moment, imagine those congregational conversations probably were not so simple. Probably weren't so straightforward. They needed wisdom to discern what was best, as opposed to just considering what was most efficient with their money and their resources and their time. See, I already talked about the kind of risks the Philippians were taking on by supporting Paul. I'm sure there were people in their ranks who raised the question, uh, can, we, can we spread the gospel? Can we uh, support Paul in, in maybe less obvious ways? Can we be subtler about this, stealthier about this, less risky about this? Maybe ways that wouldn't catch Rome's attention. Maybe that wouldn't anger our slave masters. Maybe that wouldn't mean having to, to stop going to these gatherings, because I like going to these gatherings, even if there's cultic worship. There may have been more efficient ways. After all, being persecuted, losing your livelihood, means we can't give as much. Why would God want that? Why would God want that? You see, efficiency is often confused with wisdom, isn't it? Okay? In our modern age, technology, uh, analytics, big data, all these things we see on commercials now that we pretend to understand what they are, these things, they, they can crunch numbers. They, could, they can run their formulas, their algorithms, and it tells you, hey, this is the most efficient thing to do. This is the fastest way to get there. But is efficiency and wisdom the same? Is efficiency... What is best? Okay, here's a silly example where I used algorithms. So, my family and I we went strawberry picking. Okay, I went in Indiana, and Google Maps ran its traffic algorithms very effectively in this case, and it gave us two routes. One that was ten minutes shorter, but had ten dollars of tolls. Okay, ten minutes shorter, ten dollars of tolls, and of course the other was ten minutes longer, but no tolls. Now you tell me which is the wiser which is the wiser path. No, it tells. Okay, yeah, see, okay, see, okay. So of course for us, with two little kids, I should a six-year-old and a three-year-old, because we are wise, we we're oh so wise. We decided no tolls, ten minutes, no big deal. Ten minutes longer, I'm saving that ten dollars. All right, get more strawberries. That's exactly right, and it was totally worth it. Clearly, efficiency in this case of getting there ten minutes faster is not the same as wisdom at least in our case. Here's where I'm going to flip this, though, okay? About a year ago, if we did this a year ago, the wise choice would have been very different because my younger daughter, let's just, shall we say, she makes road trips very difficult, okay? <laughs> Ten minutes is priceless when you have a two-year-old in the car. So the wise choice last year between tolls versus time, so I'm paying that, I pay like $50 in tolls, to save 10 minutes, okay? Now, why am I talking about this? It's because wisdom looks different depending on the context. And it requires maturity in Christ to discern what is aligned with God's will and what is in step with the Spirit's movements. Because it's not always going to be obvious. So let me, let me give you just one example of what this can look like today. What does it look like for us to love wisdom and not merely efficiency. One mark of wisdom is to be able to, to, to see through the enemy's designs. 
The enemy's designs led to dehumanizing groups of people, which led to, you can count it, or countless, in fact, white supremacy, chattel slavery, the Holocaust, colonization of Korea by Japan, and then arbitrary division of the Korean Peninsula by the West that tore families apart. The enemy's designs, these, these things, they start subtle, right? I don't like this guy. Two massive and generational consequences. Massive and generational consequences. One mark of wisdom is seeing through the enemy's designs and not repeating them. And not repeating them. We are in a moment where it is tempting, it's easy, and dare I say it is satisfying to belittle, to condescend, to, to shut out those on the opposite side of any argument, really, at this point, right? It could be about your favorite cheese, and people are getting up in arms about it. Or it can get really serious. All those pro-lifers are... All those pro-choicers are... You can fill in the blank. Not asking you to, but you can. Now, I admit for me, one of my blind spots is having no real empathy for people who defend gun ownership. It's hard for me. I see no defensible reason why anyone needs a gun. But this can lead me to dehumanize, to belittle, and to not listen to those who would defend gun and gun rights. When I succumb to that temptation, I fall into the enemy's designs. As verse 9 and 10 read, love that is overflowing more and more with knowledge and full insight can determine what really matters. And this love, my friends, does not use the enemy's tools. This wise love sees through the enemy's designs and refuses to play that game. This insightful love knows that people are what really matter. As Paul wrote in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus. Therefore, we cannot let the enemy's designs overtake us and delude us into dehumanizing our fellow image bearers as tempting and as fun as that feels in the moment. Our love can and must grow in wisdom. Paul and the Philippians modeled some of how beautiful mutual love in Christ can be. They're not perfect, as we'll see as we go on in this series. But God is doing an amazing work in the relationship between Paul and this church that we need to be paying close attention to. But their love that's growing deeper in mutuality and in wisdom, it wasn't for them. They benefited, but it wasn't for them. And verse 11 here is the key verse that holds everything together in this passage. It reads, Having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. For the glory and praise of God. It's all about God's glory. Our solidarity and mutuality that's demonstrated through generosity and bearing with one another through trauma and addiction and overcoming oppression... These things give God glory. We sing God's praises of his faithfulness, of his goodness, and how he sustains us through trauma, through addiction, and through oppression. 
Our wise and discerning love brings glory to God. We make the gospel of Jesus more beautiful when we humanize those we disagree with and reject the enemy's tools and designs. Our actions sing God's praises when we love our classmate who's being bullied online. Our mutual love shines bright when we are in tune with God's will and the Holy Spirit's movements, just as Jesus was. Let's pray, church. God, I thank you that it is only in Christ, only through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can live aligned to your will to love our neighbors, to grow in wisdom, to do what feels impossible, and in fact is impossible apart from you. And so, God, I thank you that you have brought people and situations to mind for us in this last 20 minutes or so people we can love better, not in our strength, not because we've got it all together, not because we're perfect, but because in Christ, through the Spirit, we can. You've given us access to that power that we do not possess to love as you do. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that for the inner work that needs to be done in some of us, God, I pray that that would be done, that you would be moving and surrounding us in mutual love and in fellowship That in this fellowship, God, there'd be no shame, there'd be no judgment, and God, that we would be practicing Christ, that we would be loving each other through addiction, through trauma, through oppression. Lord God, I also pray forward for the rest of this sermon series that what you have in this letter of Philippians that you have preserved for your purposes, God, that you would make clear to New Community Covenant Church in 2022 how we are to live this out how you have called us in this particular time, in this particular place, in this particular neighborhood and climate to be beacons of your will, of your love, and that we could be faithful, Lord. That we'd be faithful to the call of Christ in our lives. So help us, Lord, do we love each other well. Help us to first, in this church, model what mutual love looks like that we can be a shining example to our neighbors, to our community, to this city that sorely needs a different way forward. So Jesus, be that way. Lord God, be that way for us. May we live faithfully to the call that you've placed on us. We thank you, God. We love you. We pray that this word would sink deep in our hearts this week and affect actual change in the way we live our lives from Monday until next Sunday. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are faithful and good and that your love, we cannot be separated from your love, and that is what anchors us, and that is what gives us hope. So thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.